Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Okay, so why don't we get started? We're trying to get some, some more chairs here, um, but I don't know, we can, we find something for everyone to sit, but we'll try. Uh, so, welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Weekly Seminar. My name is Iris Bonnet. I'm a professor here at the school and the director of the program. It is my great pleasure to introduce Monica Kaiser to you, our guest speaker today. Monica is the head of social policy, the social policy division at the OECD. Monica has a very interesting background uh, in economics, but also in political science and journalism. And that has, I think, influenced her take um, on the world and always been very, very interested in applied work on helping us improve how we do social policy. She's worked on questions of income inequality, poverty, um, social inclusion, social protection, family policies, tax benefit systems, and also has led the OECD's efforts on gender, including the incredible report that the OECD has issued about now two years ago, um, which I think was one of the best, or is still one of the best um, in the field. And Monica and I got to know each other in Abu Dhabi last year. Um, and so, you know, different, it's just uh, really interesting how paths cross, where we both uh, served on the Women Empowerment Council of the World uh, Economic Forum. So we're in for a treat. We're delighted to have you, Monica. Thank you very much for joining us from Paris. We look forward to your talk on Closing the Gender Gap Act Now. And Monica welcomes questions of understanding during her presentation, but otherwise we should hold our comments and questions for discussion at the end. Yeah. So thanks for being here, Monica. Thank you very much for inviting me, Iris, and I'm delighted to be here today. I'm delighted that there's such a great turnout, and I'm particularly happy to see that it's not only women in the room, because this tends to happen around these issues. So thank you all for coming, and I hope you won't be disappointed. Um, the presentation, as Iris said, is about the OECD Gender Initiative. It's a big initiative which was um, initiated actually by the U.S. Um, and most specifically by Secretary Clinton, who came to the OECD and asked us to do more on collecting data and hard, solid evidence on gender equality in the world. And since we're an economics organization at the OECD, um, we decided to focus on three different issues that are important for women's economic empowerment. Education, because that lays the foundation into employment, employment, and entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. So you will see what I'm showing you now is around these three E's, what we call the three E's. Now, um, very briefly what I'm gonna talk about, the economic case for gender equality, which in the international scene right now has really reached center stage, and I will explain to you why. Key results of the OECD Gender Initiative, then I want to focus a little bit on the women and the world of work, stereotypes and segregation, female careers in the public sector, which of course for you all here in this particular um, uh, cursus and um, program is very important, then about some of the gender equality measures we see OECD member countries um, adopting, and then finally a little bit more about gender equality as an international policy issue. Now, let's start with the economic case for gender equality. This is sometimes a little bit controversial, I have to say, because some people get quite upset when we talk about talking about the economic case. Because they say, it's human rights, it's moral, it's just unacceptable that women make up half of the population, actually 51% of the population. And um, so we shouldn't even be thinking about economics. But 
It is a very powerful argument, particularly in the current times as countries are emerging from the Great Recession and starting <coughs> to go into economic recovery. And so one of the things that Secretary Clinton asked us to focus on was to look at the economic case. And so far, there's a lot of kind of dubious numbers floating around from various consulting firms that do projections on this. But um, we thought we were going to do something a little bit harder. So what we did was to look at how um, the current situation is in different countries of the OECD. Just for a reminder, the OECD has 34 member countries, which are m mostly more developed countries, but we also have member countries which are emerging economies, like Mexico, Turkey, Chile, and um, uh, so and most of the European countries are in it, Canada, the US, but also Australia, Japan, Korea. So what I've brought you here is projections in the labor force, in the number of persons aged 15 to 64. So the labor force, um, that people who, you, who are generally considered to be at working age. And you can see for a couple of countries what will happen if current trends of women working are uh, prolonged. So for example, here we have <coughs> Japan, Australia, Germany, and the United States. And you can see, for example, for Japan and Germany, that if nothing changes, then the labor force will be shrinking through population aging quite dramatically. So you can see it going down in Japan and in Germany. We did then some scenarios where we said, okay, what would be happening if women's labor force participation reached the same levels as men's labor force participations in those countries? And here you can see that that would already prevent quite a bit of shrinking. Then we would also we looked at what would happen when we had f if we had full convergence, meaning <coughs> that men, w men and women would be working the same hours. So it's not only being in the labor force, but women would also not work part-time <coughs> as much, but actually work full-time. And look what's going to come out of there, Germany, how much more. Th there would be no labor force shrinking, despite population aging. For the US, the numbers are much better anyway, because this is not uh, shrinking. We're not talking about shrinking labor force in the US. But you could see you could get much more impact here if women started to participate as much as men. And the same here for Australia. And we went a little bit further. We did some economic modeling. We said, what would this actually mean for economic growth? And here you can see that economic growth could be boosted quite substantially. Look at Japan here, big boost, and Germany. So this is also one of the reasons why, I don't know if you've been following it in the press recently, Prime Minister Abe in, in Japan has made women's labor force participation a key element of his growth strategy for Japan. So this, this is something that is very hotly being debated in the international scene, and I will return to that a little bit later, but um, it is also becoming very important in the G20. The G20 is currently uh, under Australian presidency, and the Australians have said, we want gender to be a big item. And we're all hoping, we're holding our breath, in two weeks, three weeks' time, there is the, meetings, the, the meeting of the leaders, uh, heads of state um, in Brisbane, and we're really hoping that this will feature in the final declaration. So, keep, you know, keep keep your eyes open for what happens. If we see it popping up there, that's going to be a big boost to the issue and a recognition that this is um, important at a different level than just um, yeah. Just a question on the gap here. So, between Japan and the United States, is the large gap because there is a smaller percentage of women working? Exactly. Okay. Yes. Yes. That's exactly the case. Yeah. So there's much to be gained in Japan. 
Now, let me just show you a few results from the OECD gender initiative. And I'm not going to show you too many because I want to pick out a couple of the issues later. But just a very few that, that, that we looked at. So here you have the G7 countries, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, and so on, um, uh, and European, aver European average. And here you have a couple of indicators. This is the gender gap in the percentage of population that has attained tertiary education. And the important thing to retain here is its negative gender gap in all of these countries. This means that girls are, are doing better than boys in tertiary education. And this is something that is really key to the whole issue. Think about what the world's going to look, look like in the future. We have some countries where there's going to be 70% of the graduates girls, young women. That's, that's pretty substantial. And indeed, we have some of the Scandinavian countries now which are seriously being worried about boys. Boys' performance is becoming a problem. So the gender issue is being framed in the exact opposite way than usually, traditionally, in those countries. Let me just add one more thing here. We do the PISA study, which some of you may have heard of at the OECD, that measures literacy and reading and, and math skills and so on in all the member countries. At age 15, on average, girls have one full year's equivalent of advanced vis-a-vis -vis boys. One full year. So I'd, and in math, boys are still better, but at age 15, but not a lot better. Not, I mean, not as big as the difference that we observe in literacy. Next, the next thing is the percentage of tertiary qualifications awarded to women in engineering. Pretty pathetic. 11% in Japan. The biggest we have is Italy, 33%. So very small percentages. We have, we have a strong segregation still. Um, in social sciences, humanities, um, health uh, degrees, 70% women, and very few in computing and the traditional um, STEM, science, tech, engineering, and math. And this, of course, is a problem. Why? Because this is where the future is. And this is where we know that girls will have, or everybody who takes the studies here, will have the most earnings potential and the most career development potential. This doesn't mean, of course, as a policy objective that everybody should be doing STEM, right? I mean, this is not at all. But we should uh, just be aware that this here is one of the major factors for the gender wage gaps that we observe. Here, this gender <coughs> gap in employment population, I just um, uh, already discussed that in the context of the projections. We have gender pay gap for <coughs> all ages. Huge gender pay gap, 26.5% in Japan. That's, that's really bad. <laughs> these are average numbers. And if you go up to top positions, these gaps get even bigger. So, um, and then we have also gender gap in the incidence of entrepreneurs. These are not huge gaps. They're somewhere between 2% and almost 5%. But that's also because entrepreneurship is surprisingly low, even for men and women. And to me, frankly, that was a surprise when we started looking at the numbers. I thought that entrepreneurship overall <coughs> is much more important in the economies. Okay, here is something, this is just a reference. Um, we have a three minute video that summarizes all of our results and it's quite cool. It's really, it's a nice little thing. We don't do a lot of cool things at the <laughs> <laughs> We usually inundate people with bar charts and you know, it's quite boring what we do so we're very proud. <laughs> so I want to encourage all of you to go on the website and take a look at this little video. Okay, <coughs> now let's move to women in the world of work. 
um, we still have gender gaps in total, um, in total employment. The OECD average is right here. We have, um, uh, for women, we have about 80%, and for men, it's um, close to 85-90% um, employment. So it's not a huge gap. In some countries, Turkey, Greece, Mexico, very large gender gaps. Also Italy, um, the US is right here, not too bad. It's around OECD average, actually. When women work, they often work fewer hours, paid hours than men. The emphasis is on paid. I'll show you what happens with unpaid. Mm -hmm. So a part-time employment is still very much a female thing. And this is one of the main reasons for the gender wage gap. Because what happens is that women go part-time. Why? Because that's the only way, in many cases, to combine family and work responsibilities. There isn't really a reason why women should be going part-time and not men, but it so happens that it's often culturally determined, but often it also has to do with the gender wage gap because it costs less to have a woman go part-time than have a man go part-time because they're not paid as much. So um, you can really see that there's hardly any country where, the, where the, the, there's no country really where women and men um, get close in the in the incidence of part-time. You have the U.S. right here, very little part-time <coughs> overall, and um, for, but still for men, it's maybe a third of that for women. Netherlands is very substantial. Look at, I mean, women, there's the, the part-time work here for women is extremely high, and for men, um, it's very low. Do you have the figure for Switzerland on that? Switzerland, I don't think so, no, no. But we could probably look for it. It's very high. It's normally like about yeah. yeah. It's like I mean, Aust Austria, Germany, and Switzerland are pretty bad. The Netherlands is a bit of an outlier because the Netherlands does part-time work <coughs> in general quite quite happily, and and even without children, people like part-time work much more than. So in the U.S., then we have a narrative of people taking multiple part-time jobs to mm -hmm. make ends meet. Is that reflected in here? <coughs> if someone has two part-time jobs that equal forty hours. That's a good question. I think that would be counted as, as part-time jobs yeah. and not added up for, per person because it's difficult Thank in you. the statistics to add it, sure. add it up. Okay. Um, now, when we come to the public sector, here we have Switzerland, actually. <laughs> in the public sector, uh, uh, women are even more likely to work in part-time positions. That's perhaps also because the public sector, to be honest, in many countries makes it easier than the private sector to go part-time. It's often easier to have, um, the, the public employer will more easily often agree to part-time um, jobs. So in Germany, look, um, the share of part-time positions in central government is almost 90% of everybody working part-time in the public sector is female. Sweden is 75%, and to be honest, that's still pretty Considering how far advanced Sweden is overall in gender equality, that's pretty substantial still. Um, Switzerland is right here. We're at 70%. Um, so, so this is, of course, again, um, public sector. The public sector in many countries, it's overall in OECD countries, female employment makes up for 60% of the public sector employment. Um, and it's again, it's it's often public sector jobs can be more stable, can be more <coughs> guaranteed, can have more regular working hours, but also have lower pay in many cases. But it has lower pay at medium level, and not at all levels of income. Because I was actually the surprised to see <coughs> that 
if you take the average, the public sector, you're better off in the public sector because all of those kind of difficult, low-paid jobs in the public sector, you don't have that you find in the private sector often. So overall, we have women um, doing much more unpaid work at home and men doing more time in paid work. It's interesting, they did s there are some studies, I don't know if you've heard of those, that show when a child arrives in a couple, um, women start to reduce their working hours and men actually start to increase, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is quite interesting. So let me explain this graph here. The dark blue bars, um, these, these, are, these are all the, the gaps, basically. So the dark blue bars are the gaps in paid work. And here you can see that um, they're negative, meaning that for women, from a women's perspective, it's men working more um, in paid work. And the unpaid work, those are the light, bar, uh, light bars, um, are the ones, the uh, is, 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 is in favor, if you like, of women, so women do more unpaid work. And you can see here in countries, Japan, Turkey, Mexico, women and men actually work the same. There's the, they're zero gender gap if you take it all together, because all the time that men spend more in paid work, women spend more in unpaid work. Notable is that even in very advanced countries like Norway, and I think Norway is the best performer, here you have still a small advantage of um, women in unpaid work. So women still do a few more minutes, but it's not a lot. These are the minutes. This is zero, 100 minutes. But in Mexico, we're close to, well, to about more than 250 minutes more unpaid work done by women than by men. And this again, or Italy is also pretty, pretty bad here. <laughs> so, and when you start getting into the data then, and you look at what type of unpaid work men do, when they do, if they do it at all, it's usually recreational activities with the kids. It's not cooking, cleaning, and caring as much. It's, you know, playing football and taking them out and doing cultural things and so on. So, this I brought you a little picture here. This is a very interesting campaign that the French government started. Um, there's a, they, they call this the, they have a laboratory of um, equality where they're trying to promote more equality. Now, I have to explain to you. Wednesdays is a day in France where kids have either no school or half-day school. And, um, and it's usual that women, very many women in France work 80%, so meaning one day not, or 90% in order to take care of the kids on Wednesdays. And this is what this is about. It's Wednesday, 3 o'clock. Dad's working, mom's taking her day off. Who's talking about equality? So this is a very typical situation that even in countries where it's quite advanced, um, the, uh, the women are the ones who are doing all this unpaid work. Now let's look at the famous glass ceiling. Career progression for women in the private sector is very limited, as we all know. Um, we have here um, the, the senior manager's share and compared to the labor force share of women. So you can see the labor force share is quite big, ranging from about 30% in Turkey mm -hmm. up to 50% um, in Estonia and the Russian Federation, Finland and France. But the share of women in senior management is consistently much, much lower. And the worst performers here are Turkey, Korea, um, this is China, actually surprisingly low. Uh, then, and this here is, and that, that to me was surprising as well, Denmark, again, a country with a lot of emphasis on gender equality, very low share of senior managers. Let me see, where is the U.S.? U.S. is right here, doing very well. So that's good news for all of you who want to work in this country. <laughs> <laughs> but 
even without running a, an elaborate regression, that already suggests to us, right, that that translation is not automatic, that yes. some, there's more going on to help us explain why we see these increases in labor force participation, but maybe not in city exactly. management or vice versa. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Mexico, for example, they low labor force participation of women, <coughs> but comparatively speaking, yeah. high. And this is, of course, what's interesting here is because often, what's often in the, gen in the public gender debate, what people usually focus on is women on boards, because that is like the most, uh, the most prominent and the most um, kind of publicity-driven um, value. And some countries, and particularly the first pioneer country on this was Norway, with a 40% quota of either gender on board. So you can have, you can have less than 40% of either women or men on a board. But look at what happens with senior management in Norway. They're not doing that well. And that shows you <coughs> that it's not only about women on boards. You need the pipeline. You need these women coming up from the bottom and make sure that they rise. So um, in a sense, you know, looking at how well the US is doing, and people should be coming here to understand how, it's, how to do better. But um, of course, there's still a lot to be done, even in the US. Um, here's the public sector. Um, same problem. We have again the bars are the share of top management positions filled by women, and then uh, and this uh, and this is the share of and the little triangles are the share of central government positions filled by women. So the triangles show you here, for example, Slovenia. You have 60% of the central government positions are filled are filled by women, but only 40% of the top management, and they're doing the best here. Sweden doing pretty good. Canada is doing quite well in comparison. Switzerland, right here. <laughs> there you go. And um, Austria, Germany, Belgium. So, I mean, this is here. This is 10%, 20%. We look at, the, in Belgium, the difference between the share of women overall in central government and then leading, leading positions. So, if you take those two slides together, then you can really see that there is a big problem. Like, you know, said you don't even have to do any fancy econometrics <laughs> here. It's very clear that there is a big problem. Yeah. So, what's the proportion of the top management positions to positions overall, though? Because this is just for women, but for the aggregate, what is it? Ah, okay. Um, actually, I don't have that here. Um, so, but because <coughs> I, I just look at this, I think that this is useful information, but it doesn't tell me anything if I don't know what the overall. Percentage of no, no, you don't. Actually, you don't need that because these are the shares of the. You know, this tells you that of all of the top management positions that exist, only ten percent are women. So, okay, so, so if that. you take all the central the central government people who have have more responsible positions, you will have nine men and one woman. Okay. And so it doesn't really matter how many positions there are. But overall, if you compare it to the labor share, it would be interesting, of course, to look at how many managers are there compared to, to overall employment. <coughs> so here's the gender wage gap. This is another picture from this, from this French campaign. Um, <coughs> this is 17% uh, wage gap, 100% inequality. So you see the guy and the, the woman who is being pushed down. And you have to imagine these posters had quite, a, quite, a, quite an effect because they were uh, in the metro. And so they were gigantic. As people were waiting for the metro, they were staring at these gigantic posters. So it was, it's, it was a nice campaign. So here's the gender wage gap for median earnings. And this is what I said before. This is only looking at a man and a woman <coughs> earning the medium and how big is the difference. As you move up to higher positions, the gap becomes much larger. And unfortunately, 
the gap is also already quite substantial after three years of work. Because you can say, we know of course that at time out, part time, um, certain career choices, all of that adds to composing the gender wage gap. But even if you don't have children, after three years already there is a gender wage gap. The OECD average here is 15%. United States, almost 20%. Japan, very large, not surprisingly. Um, and even Norway, Denmark, the good performers, here we have 7%, and here about, yeah, six or between 6 and 8%. I'm sorry, is that the percentage of men earning the median wage versus percentage of women earning, earning the median no. wage, or is that? No, no, it's the difference. So you take, you take all the men, okay? And then you look what is the median wage median of the men. Oh, and then you take all the women, and then you compare the two median wages, and it's the gap between the two. Thank you. Okay, let's move to stereotypes and segregation. We looked at the number of women in the lists of the most influential people, because we thought it would be interesting to take a look um, in this very publicly available um, uh, magazines and, and campaigns. So we looked at Time 100. And we looked at what happened in 2004 and 2013. In 2004, we had a little bit more than, with about 22% women. And in 2013, we're close to 35%. So that's an advance. Here is the um, uh, F, I guess it's, and that's not Forbes, I can't remember. <coughs> it's the top 100 global thinkers. 2005 numbers is um, about 7%. And 2012, again, close to 35 the Forbes most powerful people, not great. <laughs> here we're close to five, and then here we're about eight or so. So it shows you that there is some progression, but there's still way to go, I would say. But of course it reflects, it's, you know, I don't want to accuse any of these people doing these indices. It, it reflects the situation in the world, right? And the Time 100, I think, they also had a specific emphasis. They made it their objective to be better in terms of gender equality in choosing the people they were featuring in the, in the list of the 100 um, most influential people. Stereotypes are resilient. Here you can see um, a, a man and a woman in an elevator. And he, this is, again, it's French. They have, unfortunately, I've searched a lot for, for funny American jokes. But in fact, <laughs> it turns out that most of them are French. Because <laughs> maybe there's more of a need in France to move, move ahead. And here it says, this is the reception, secretariat, technic, marketing, the director, and the president. And he looks at the woman and says, I suppose you want to go to the first floor, right? <laughs> so, but does this hold up? Where does this come from? Now take a look at this. This is the se se gender segregation and occupation in central, in central government. And I, and I, it doesn't exist in the same way for a private sector. And I thought, anyway, since we're here in the School of Public Policy, it would be interesting for you to take a look. These are secretarial positions in green, professionals, middle management, and top management. And you can see that in most countries, um, as you move up in the scale, that um, the percentages of women um, get far lower. So it's not only a stereotype. It is also something that reflects reality. Now, what, are the f what about female careers in the public sector? Uh, this is a, a, a little world map that shows you where women are important. Um, <coughs> low is dark red, and the farther up you go towards yellow, countries are doing well. Look at your neighbors, 45% in Canada, that's pretty good. 37% um, in Australia. Um, then Brazil, US is not so bad compared to others. Russia, very bad. China, 
India, Saudi Arabia, zero. Um, how, gives do you, how, do you, uh, how do you define leaders? <coughs> These are people who are, um, it's, 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 a, it's an index that's not done by us. I think it's Ernst & Young. So, so they, look, they look at people who are in, in leading positions. So that could be ministers, prime ministers, but CEO, uh, uh, but, but you know, top of agencies probably also, top judges and so on. So anybody who is in a top management position in, in, in governments. Now these things obviously move very quickly because in usually you have quite few women anyway to begin with. And then if you, from one government to the next, you can have pretty large changes. So this is what this slide here shows. We have only 12 countries that have passed the 30% benchmark for representation in parliament. So um, this is a, the share of women parliamentarians um, in lower or single <coughs> houses of parliament. In 2002 is the little dime, the, the triangle, the red one, and the blue bars are for 2012. And Sweden, you can see, has been stable at 45%. So that's very good. And this is without a quota, actually. Um, and the, and the, light, the light blue countries here have quotas. And they have, you can see that they, the, the moment they instituted a quota, it started to get up very, very high. So you have um, Belgium, Mexico, Spain, Slovenia, Portugal, France, Poland, <coughs> Korea, Ireland. So um, this is, uh, this is, these are legislative candidate quotas. That means that, of course, you're not going to put a quota and say you have to elect a certain number of women in parliament. It's not automatically uh, uh, reserved seats in parliaments um, for women. This is one way you could do it. You could just say, no matter what happens, in the parliament we need so and so many women. It's more about parties that put up women for election. So the lists of parties when they present their parties for election has to include a certain number of women. But, um, so you can, you had a question on that? I'm just wondering if you know of non-OECD non countries, how many have passed the 30% benchmark? Very few, <coughs> very few. There was a quota proposed in India, but I think it went nowhere. Yes. But they have a quota in, on, on local government, and that seems to be working quite well by changing the culture. Sometimes, actually, these, these type of quotas are more effective if they are at lower levels because they, they're much closer <coughs> to the people than just having people in, in the capital, in the, in the national parliament, um, because they, they, that, that is quite, quite far removed from many of the people where this culture changing could take place. And preliminary evidence, it hasn't existed for very long, but the, we just did a, a review of the, India, uh, of the <coughs> Indian gender situation, and this is put forward as one of the good examples. So the women in power are the trendsetters. Here's just some of them, who you all know, and I was delighted to see some of them actually on the walls of this room. <laughs> um, in some countries, it's actually been going down. So I've got the United States here. Um, again, 2005 is the, is the uh, red triangle, and 2012, the latest data we have are the blue bars. And you can see that in some countries, we were better off in 2005 than in 2012. For example, Spain. I don't, they were 50%, I don't know if you remember, it was a, it was very, very publicity, uh, uh, wi uh, very widely publicized. There was the Zapatero government, which had 50% women, and there was the very pregnant defense minister doing the line of the troops. And it went, it was a picture that went all around the world because it was so, um, 
you know, seeing that not only a woman was in charge of a previously very male-considered domain, but on top of it, she was pregnant, she was going to go on maternity leave, and she had this position. But ever since, there's been um, changes in government, and um, the drop number of ministers has dropped substantially. In the U.S., you've doubled since 2005, so that's quite good. But uh, as I said before, in many cases, there's quite a bit of movement in this, because if you have, you can have, a, I don't know, 50% drop if you have four ministers and two of them resign then or, or are not re-elected and then it goes down again. Yeah? Actually, in Australia, we had about 50% or, or just less. And with the change of government, we've only got now one female minister. Yeah. Like and and, and in Australia, you also, I mean, with Julia Gillard, you really had, I mean, this, this yeah. that, the, the her famous diatribe uh, against misogyny. If it, for those of you who haven't seen this yet, it's worth seeing. It is an amazing speech that she gave in Parliament um, uh, about gender equality. Mm -hmm. Yes? Just a curiosity. Did you look at what kind of ministry they're actually leader of? Because sometimes there's the stereotypes. They should just do like equal opportunity ministers? Um, no. No, we didn't do that in detail. No, no. But I think that would be a good thing to do. But you're right, of course, that anecdotal evidence shows you. It's social ministries, health ministries, education. education. Yeah. And... Um, and uh, but but then you know we, like I said we had defense in Spain Germany has a female <coughs> defense minister at the moment um, uh, but ministers of finance and prime ministers uh, and president presidents more often actually because this is in many countries president is is more ceremonial but the very powerful positions it's rare to have women that's still true um, we also have more and more female judges, but again, press courts of the courts are still presided by men. Same story. Um, we have the um, here the share of, of professional judges that are women, very high in some countries. Um, here is eighty percent. So we have Slovenia, Greece, Hungary, another high country, Estonia, many of the Eastern Europeans actually, but very few. Um, uh, uh, court presidents, which are women, except in Greece. Look, in Greece, you have actually a little bit more, almost, um, president, female court presidents than you have um, share of um, female judges. So what type of gender equality measures is the public sector um, adopting? I think this is a really, really important point, because what we usually do when we ask um, private business, what do you expect from governments? They say the first thing is <coughs> lead by showing, by example. Lead by, by showing us how you can do it. And too many governments are still not really showing the public sector, the private sector where they could go. Um, we have targets in some countries. So very quickly here we have Sweden, Norway, and Japan where they have hiring targets in the public sector. 50% in Sweden, 40% in Norway, <coughs> and 30% in Japan, which is supposed to be met by 2015. That's, that's within the Abenomics, so he's going to have to work very hard to get there. And then we have promotion targets for, for, for top positions in France. 40% of, of the nominations in top positions have, have to be female by 2018. This, is, this is, was done by an extremely determined female minister. She, she's an absolutely amazing person, and she pushed this ahead just in the last couple of years uh, very much. Surprisingly, also the UK, 39% of all senior civil service positions by 2013. Israel, 25%. Uh, Switzerland, 16 to 20. Germany, um, 
12.2. I don't know how they got to that. <laughs> to be honest, must be some kind of weird. <laughs> I have to find out. I'm, unfortunately, I can't ask. If anybody wants to ask me what that means, I have to find out. <laughs> I should know being German, but okay. Um, measures to improve work-life balance. This is the whole list of things that you usually have. And, um, leave to take care of a sick family member. 100% um, of those who answered the survey say they have these measures. Um, flexibility in, in how you design your work schedule over the, the day, part-time employment, again, um, needs for pregnant women, meaning that you, that you allow them to ch change their hours, um, breastfeeding, teleworking, but then when you, when you go down here, you leave to take care of an elderly family member, much less, and employer-provided childcare facilities, much less as well. And this one here, leave for elderly family care, this is going to become increasingly important in the future in many, many countries as populations age. Then, um, here, Monica, yeah. is response is response bias a big issue for the OECD or less so? Because no, less you are so. The OECD. No, 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 this was very well responded. I mean, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 it's, a, it's usually, the nice thing about the OECD is that the moment our member countries join, they're more or less obliged to answer all the many questions we ask them. So it's it's very, it, they, you know, they we can see their eyes rolling already. Send out another questionnaire and they're like, oh God, here they come again, please. But they do answer. And so we get usually at least, I would say 20, 20 out of the 34, we usually have 30 countries minimum, if they have the data. Some things that are very special where you, particularly when you start looking for longitudinal data, it becomes very complicated. But, but on these administrative data, they're usually very good. I would have to look up for each of these questions, but it's it's quite representative. Yeah. So, um, here uh, we have um, we have a couple of questions we ask them about implementing and monitoring these these um, uh, question uh, the, these different mechanisms because that's that's where it all stops. You know, they say a lot. We love, we're doing this and we're committed and so on, but then in the end, nobody really follows up. And this happens in a lot of, that happens in private companies, but that happens in the public sector. And what is interesting here is not the always, the blue boxes are always, but the, but the interesting ones is sometimes or never, which is green and, and, and red. And if you look, for example, audits or inspections, including by external audit institutions, 60% said has not been set up. So they don't do this. And 36% <coughs> said sometimes, and 5%, was probably, I don't know, maybe two or three countries, probably said um, uh, always. And the same here, integration of gender equality requirements in job descriptions, 50% um, not been set up and 50% sometimes. Now you could argue, obviously, maybe that's not necessary in all positions. Um, each of these measures is something you could really uh, uh, discuss whether, whether you think that it's too much of a gender bias or not. But this one, I think, is one of the, this is called integration into managers' performance accords. And that is the main thing in the international debate. It's not only about mentoring, it's about making people accountable. And look, 86% say they haven't set this up, and 14% said maybe sometimes. So I think this is one of the keys, is that we're not going to advance if people aren't made more accountable for this. If it's not part of their performance evaluations as managers, and even, you know, uh, you could go further. You could think about shareholders in the private sector, and this is public sector, but in the private sector, you could think <coughs> about shareholders starting to make this an issue which is as important as socially responsible investment. As I was walking around here yesterday, 
I saw some of your fellow students um, protesting against um, uh, fossil fuel investments in, their, in, their, in the investment of the Harvard funds. And you could think of people doing the same thing for not investing in, country, in companies that are not better do, and doing better on gender, or preferring at least countries that are, uh, companies that are doing better on gender records. Now, um, this and this this is finishing up now. The, the OECD gender recommendation. I wanted to briefly tell you about this. What we've been doing as a result of this report, where all of this data comes from, we wanted to take a closer look at what countries could actually do, how could we as an international policy institution push this issue further. And we looked at what had been done in the past, and in 1980, there was a committee, which was called at the time the Committee for Employment and Manpower, <laughs> Manpower, um, which put out a gender recommendation where they said all these things that countries should be doing to improve the employment for women, 1980. When we started to look at it 32 years later, we realized this was really complete, and countries did nothing, or very, very little. I can't say nothing, but really not enough. And we had a big push at that time at the OECD with Secretary Clinton, who chaired a major meeting of ministers, with Michel Bachelet, who is right there, <laughs> um, and others who really pushed for it very hard. So we <coughs> said, let's, let's go back to this. And, and so we have, and you can check this out on our website, a long list of policies that countries have agreed they want to commit to and want to implement. And we are called upon at the OECD within four years after the adoption of this recommendation to go back and take a look what they've actually been doing. And I already know that it's going to be kind of depressing to do this, but I think we really need more of a push. And um, what's in it is, again, focusing on the three E's, is education, employment, and entrepreneurship. And in, the, in big lines, what we're talking about is to promote more gender equality in educational attainment, what I mentioned first, the um, reading and, and math differences, and the choices. The choices, I think, is one of the most difficult because it's really difficult to see how you can, from a policy perspective, push more for it, but you can remove bias. And we see more and more countries, even starting in elementary school, starting to think about how do you treat girls, how do you treat boys, what type of reading material do you choose? Very often, there's a tendency, even in kindergartners, so to say, okay, look, girls, let's sit over here, and the boys that go play football, they, you know, it's kind of accepted that boys do things where, which are more physical, where, where they're a little bit more noisy and so on, and the girls, we can do something manual, and, and, and the teachers are often not even aware of that type of bias because it's just so ingrained and it's, it's normal, and it's, it's way before this, you know, pink, be, uh, pink, uh, pink and blue division for, in terms of clothes and toys and so on. And um, I think there's a lot of awareness now about these issues. There, in, the, in the, I think it was in the 80s, there was still a talking Barbie doll which said, math class is hard. <laughs> and Matilda had to take it off the market very quickly. But, but you can see how it's, it's starting to change, but I think we have to, we have to do much more, and it's, it's a difficult thing to, to do for, for policy. Promoting fam family-friendly um, policies and working conditions, that's a no-brainer. I don't think I have to say anything about that. The U.S., by the way, is one of three countries in the world that still does not have paid maternity <coughs> leave. Um, the other ones, are, I think, are Papua New Guinea and Lesotho. And I'm set, right? <laughs> Actively reduce the gender wage gap. Um, increase the representation of women in decision-making positions. And we have, in, in the recommendation, you will see 
that there's lots and lots of measures behind each of these recommendations, how different countries are attaining this. For this one, we had a huge debate about the quota, because there are some countries that are adamantly opposed, and other countries that are very much for it. So, And then entrepreneurship. Um, uh, entrepreneurship is much centered about access to finance, how women are being treated when they go to a bank, um, about angel investors, about um, growth uh, versus just kind of getting by, risk taking, um, and also family friendly policies because a lot is available often for women who are employed but not so much for women who are self-employed. So. I want to end being at the Kennedy School in politics. If you want anything uh, said, ask a man. If you want anything done, ask a woman. That was Margaret Thatcher. And I apologize to the men present in the room. <laughs> um, I'd like to encourage you also to take a look at our gender website where you can find lots of tools which I think might be useful for you and your work if you're working in this particular area because we have interactive gender data browsers where you can pull up different countries, different indicators, you can compare over time, you can choose a set of countries that you want to compare against. Very easy to find. It's on the OECD website slash gender. So uh, I look forward to your questions now. <laughs>
Thanks a lot for speaking to me. My name is uh, Marcus. Uh, I went to a talk at the law school the other day, and they were uh, addressing like the talking point that women make like 78 cents when a man makes a dollar. And now one of the speakers, speakers was saying like amongst the same major field of position, it's like 94 cents. But I thought you had like an interesting graphic that showed that in association with leadership, and as you go up the ladder, the amount of women associated with those positions like inversely decreases. And so I was wondering, do you know of a study, or do you think it would be effective to see like the distinctions in um, wages that people earn in the same field in relation to like men being disproportionately promoted, even though like some women can have the same qualifications? Mm -hmm. Could you yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. Well, those those not, those data exist, and we've we've okay. done. You you'll see par, uh, part of them in the report. Now, we usually at the OECD, unfortunately, because we're comparing 34 member countries, we usually lift things to quite <coughs> aggregated level, because because otherwise you can't really compare these studies. But it's very important to do these studies um, and to look at exactly the same qualifications. And that's, for example, where what I mentioned before, when you take young women, three years. After having yeah. worked, young women and young men, already there's a big difference yeah, yeah. in most countries. And that's, for example, that data is, is for um, particular countries. In that case, for example, that was a French study they, they did. But um, we've also done pretty sophisticated econometric analysis looking at the determinants for this gender wage gap. And it turns out that depending on the country, the determinants can be very different. So for example, in Germany, um, one of the big difference, almost half of the gender wage gap is explained through the part-time work <coughs> issue. Because, because people, as, as I said before, the women, they take whatever works with kids' school hours, right? So, and if it's, if it's not what they were trained for, or, and, and they don't get promoted. It's very rare that you get a lot of responsibility if you find a job at, at those conditions, but then you don't get promoted. But then, of course, there's also a large part, what then they call the unobserved, right? So we don't really, unexplained, unobserved, we don't really know where it comes from. And that is discrimination. That's the thing about CVs, you know, um, about, uh, about women not being forceful enough when they, who's the make, they, last week who was it Microsoft? The Microsoft yeah. guy who yeah. said that <laughs> we shouldn't be asking for raises. Unfortunately, it's something, um, there's a book out called The Confidence Gap, which is still a lot of women have this confidence gap that you kind of sit around and wait for people to recognize how good you are. Well, Many of the men are better at putting forward what, what they believe they should have, you know? And so uh, I think there's, a, it, there's not one single reason, but in some countries it's very clear that if you could, for example, address the combination of the part-time issue and this, the educational choice issue, then you could get quite far already. A very uh, small addition to this. I'm from the Netherlands, so uh -huh. I know that most of the women, also of my age, and also if they don't have children, they work part-time because it's a culture. But we have a very good availability of um, child care support. It's supported by the government. Um, you get social uh, welfare. Everything is available. But still, it's more in the culture. It's not about that it's not available, but it's mm -hmm. that people think that you're a bad parent if you're if you put your uh, kids uh, in daycare mm -hmm. uh, five days a week or even four days. That's not acceptable. So three days is it's okay. The, it, it's the okay, um, yeah, level. Yeah. Um, I have a question that has to do with uh, the business case, mm -hmm. um, and it's a critical question. Um, 
it seems to me that when we make the business case, we by definition also are saying women need to be fitted into the existing structures of the economy, into the maybe even existing structures of uh, a patriarchal value system. Uh, and uh, it then affects how we argue from there. Yeah. And uh, specifically, I, I'd like to point out two things. Um, the one is, um, is the issue of education, actually. We have apparently a surplus of women in tertiary education, if I can put it that way, yet the focus is on education still, because precisely women don't seem to be studying the right stuff. Mm -hmm. right? But who's to say what's the right stuff? Mm -hmm. And why is are the STEM disciplines valued more highly than the humanities or care labor or whatnot. And in part, it's because people make more money in those areas. Mm -hmm. uh, but is that not also associated with the fact that those are male areas? And if enough women push into it, you won't make actually that much more money. Anymore. We've seen that in the It's true. Mm -hmm. and, and the second issue uh, has to do with uh, focusing on uh, work family. <coughs> Um, balance. Um, and aren't we, by um, not questioning uh, the fact that there's a gender division of labor, and are just focusing on work-family balances, aren't we de facto sometimes replicating the gender divisions of labor? Mm -hmm. So we introduce flexible forms of labor, we introduce part-time labor, and it becomes women's labor. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, we're actually not disturbing. Yeah. Uh, the structures yeah. that are there in yeah. society. Yeah. Um, the on the on the second point, that's very very important, and that's one of the reasons why we at the OECD recommend a lot the non-transferable parental leave, because that seems to have worked really to change culture, um, to really change the way that that parents deal with children. Non-transferable parental leave means that. When you have like a year of parental leave, which in many Scandinavian countries it's reasonably well paid, um, there's a couple of months set aside for the father, which the father has to take, otherwise it goes. And it can't be transferred to the mother. And uh, Iceland is a country that's pushing the farthest out of the nine months they have currently is three months for the mother, three months for the father, and the three months they can choose, mother or father, which often is the mother's, but not always. And in, um, in, the, in the future, they want to have five and four. So I think five for the mother still, and then four for the father. There's a couple of obstacles when you try to do this. France just did this for a few months. The, the women had a freak out. Can't do this. This is not good. This is not. All the conservative um, groups were up in arms and said, this is not acceptable, and one shouldn't do this. But if you don't do that, um, and if you don't make it clear that father's role is as important at home for the balance of everybody, the family, the child, and every, it, it will not change. And when you see how the working culture has changed in the Scandinavian countries, um, we had just a debate with a, with a professor from Finland, and he says, my PhD students, I know girls like boys, when a child arrives, they will be gone for six months. And only when the risk of employing a man and a woman becomes yeah. the same in terms yeah. of absence at work that's when we have this real change. And, and your other point about the STEM, uh, no, I don't think we ever want to say that people shouldn't be going into humanities. Um, 
it's it's not about that, but I think what often what you often hear is that women say, if I had known that what what my job prospects were going to be, and that you have to work so much harder to get to a position like you have in in humanities or we have, right? Um, it's it's a it's a choice that you have to be aware what the consequences are, maybe also or the potential consequences. Now, should they be valued as much? Yes, but do you see the private sector? being the one paying salaries like they pay in Silicon Valley, afterwards you can say, I don't want that, I don't need, I don't need that type of, of income, right? But it, and if you look at inequality in the US, for example, you strip out you strip out Wall Street and you strip out Silicon Valley, it becomes much more equally distributed, right? Mm -hmm. So but I think it's more than anything it should be an, an awareness raising. Um, than, 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 than prescriptive, because no, I don't see any government saying every, all the girls go in that, but well, girls shouldn't automatically assume that they can't do this, which in many cases they still do. You have a question? Um, I, I've been noticing that actually in the university, for, for example, in Harvard University, all the major like uh, uh, top universities, gender equality actually is, is very um, balanced, distributed. So that's keeping me thinking that um, if this mechanism allowed women to really uh, have a choice, like uh, balance the need, social needs and economic needs, um, and I think things can be achieved. So that triggered my question to you, that do you think that um, in the private sector they, or the public sector, they can learn something from the school uh, or the education uh, sector that allow female to fulfill their personal goals, while also um, can you know fully exercise this um, activity, uh, uh, equality ex uh, activities? Yeah, I think I have. To, I'm I'm very optimistic by nature, so I'm absolutely convinced <laughs> that that it's up to you guys, right? It's up to all of you because you are the ones that generation now who is who is really who has experienced this much more equal student life already, and it's the way how you choose to manage your personal lives and what you ask of your future employers. And I think there's, you know, talking to multinationals today, you hear that they have more and more trouble getting people to kind of travel around the world and relocate all the time. But not only women, huh? this is young men the same, they're saying, I'm not doing this anymore. I don't, I just bought a house and I don't want to do it. So, so this, this famous debate about millennials and Generation Y and so on, not wanting to dedicate their life and uh, to the to sometimes the whims of an employer who sends you I don't know to work in Latin America for three years then to Africa for three years and to Asia for three years and so on where which men have until now a generation my generation or the ones of my fathers they you know they accepted that and the women would just basically move with them and then stay at the last station so that the kids could finish school and the father was already moving on. So you see that younger generations are refusing this already and that's part of the deal, I think, part of the package. And, um, but it also has to do with how young people view their sharing within the household and how you, as, as you know, how you, how you choose to, with the person that you build a family and build a household with, how you choose to be and how you choose to devote your time and what you demand as a woman of a man and a man of a woman. There's also a lot about expectations because governments can do only so much, right? Mm -hmm. And they shouldn't be actually. They should be giving you good conditions to choose and one of the things that's also very important, I didn't mention this here, in the tax benefit systems, there are still some countries where it is 
not good to be a second earner because the tax on the second earning is so high that it actually takes away, when you count in childcare, that it's just simply not worth for the person who has a lower salary to work. And it's very interesting because for me, one of the central questions is how do we, how did the countries that are doing well, how did they get there? So in a sense, how did Iceland become Iceland? How did Sweden become Sweden? Look at Iceland. They had already, as early as the 60s, they had a positive tax credit for second earners when they were women. So they have 50% tax credit, so they made it worth your while. They made it super interesting. And I think those economic incentives do work. So uh, I think it's, a, it's really something where we have to look at the overall package of policy. Um, but people, the people themselves, as you said, they also have their, their role to, to play. Well, can I just add a footnote to um, just how the private sector is already responding to something that you just said? Um, I just recently learned that uh, many multinationals now have created a new club um, where they, um, the idea is so I want to hire someone from Nestle uh, who's now in the in Switzerland and the person has to go to Argentina. So then Nestle reaches out to Microsoft and UBS and you know other kinds of multinationals to, to see whether there's a space for the spouse. So they've totally realized that dual career issues now are real. Mm -hmm. Or there's other examples um, close to your home and INSEAT, uh, as you probably know, a leading business school in Europe and France in Fontainebleau. It's a beautiful place outside of Paris in the woods, lovely. Um, and now, it turns out they have a second campus in Singapore. It's yeah. easier for them to find people for Singapore because it's easier for dual career couples to work in Singapore than in Fontainebleau. And you mm -hmm. can, you know, Paris is not that far away, but still. So it's no, but really even Paris seeing, is not easy. To, it's not easy for. We see that at the OECD. So we're yeah. seeing that. Yeah. yeah, that it's. I mean, the, the, I, I mean, I agree with everything yeah. you said. There, yeah. There's movement in, on the demand side as well. Um, you know, responding to your supply and your the demands of the supply. And and uh, as a manager, I have to say, I have about 35 people. Mid, most of them are mid-career, so they're they're a bit older than you guys, but not a lot. And um, and the most of the people who come and ask for um, uh, leave or, or more flexibility because of parental um, responsibilities have been men recently, and I was delighted. And you know, <laughs> I grant this. <laughs> I'm always very flexible, but even more so when I see uh, men coming and asking for more flexibility. And I think there's another point. It's not only about how young people design their careers together. It's also how societies are changing. And we see more and more people also recomposing their families and people living in different parts and splitting up and getting together with somebody else. And so there, there, there needs to be more flexibility for, for family reasons. So. And in the corner. Um, my question, sort of on a similar vein, is about the gap that you showed between public sector and private sector incentives for women in the workplace. And given that that gap exists, but there's also, as you mentioned, very strong economic incentive for private sector companies to incorporate more women in their workforce, um, and given the fact that there is this sort of multinational club that you mentioned, and also, I guess there's a debate as to whether it's good or bad, but Apple has just recently announced this egg freezing incentive, which is, <laughs> whether it's good or bad is very costly. Mm -hmm. um, do 
I think there's not really a public-private sector gap. I think there's a there's a there's a gap between in the private sector between large companies and smaller companies. Um, in, if you work for large multinationals, chances are you have pretty good benefits. You have good healthcare benefits. You have parental leave benefits. You have, as Iris described, also efforts to, to employ spouses and so on. But um, but when it gets where it gets very difficult is for smaller companies to provide th that type of, of coverage. Um, in, in that sense, the gap is already shrinking between public sector and, and, and private sector um, in that respect, I think. Um, where the public sector is having a harder time is providing childcare, <laughs> strangely, because you would think that that would be relatively easy, and, uh, but, but it's, uh, it's something that they don't, they don't do in the same way. Question. Um, this is very interesting. Thank you very much for the presentation. I was wondering how much input from this work actually gets into the secretariat, the OECD secretariat. Are you just an OECD is just an average of all the countries, or uh, how is it? How is the situation in terms of career trajectory, for example? In the OECD, in the OECD secretariat. <laughs> <laughs> I come from the UN, so I probably. Okay. Well. Um, <laughs> Until recently, we were doing okay-ish on senior management. It wasn't that great. Then three, two women retired, and the, the you know, I mean, <laughs> no, no. I have to say, um, they've been very good at lower levels. They, for example, the young professionals program, they really targeted. It was almost for a couple of years. It was very difficult for men even to get into the young professionals program. Um, then. Um, in the uh, the first, they have this, the senior. It's, it's quite. It's not a very hierarchical organization. So we have senior management is only three levels. The lowest level of senior management, which is head of division, is now becoming increasingly feminized. They're they're doing quite well on that. The levels over that, deputy director and director, very very little. But that's problem is also that there's very little movement. Once people become director, they stay there. So it's also a generational issue. But uh, we, I am very happy to announce we're having a new, um, I don't know when she's starting, but we have a new chief economist, a woman, an American woman, Catherine Mann, who comes from um, the Treasury, I think. So, uh, but partly it's also to do with what member countries decide. Um, for example, the Secretary General has four deputies, and the people who become deputies are chosen by the member countries as candidates. And then he can choose between the different candidates that he's that are being proposed, but if the member countries don't propose enough women, um, that's a problem. And I remember I got, um, I, I used to be, before I came to the OECD, I worked at the World Bank and a former colleague of mine came to an environment meeting at the OECD. And she was sitting in there and she sent me an email, horrified, she said, this place is terrible, it's all male and all white, what is going on here, this is terrible. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, well, the problem is these were delegates sent by member countries to represent their countries at these meetings at the OECD. So uh, in, if anything, I think it also, those type of things also reflect problems in the public sector in member countries. I have a former colleague sitting here, Anke, do you have a, do you have a view on, <laughs> on gender equality at the OECD? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I, I don't really have much to add uh, in that, I think it just gets very political at, a, at, at very senior levels. And uh, Monica probably has a better vision of that than I did. But I certainly felt that within uh, the head of division level and within the divisions, that the gender balance, uh, that certainly in, uh, in, in DELSA, what we call employment, labor, and social affairs, all of the management was very conscious of this. And I remember being in 
hiring committees where the deputy director and now my head of division made a very big point of thinking about the gender balance in, in the division and in, in making recruitment. Yeah. Uh, just a question about representation um, on the, I mean, you just talked about OECD countries sending reps that uh, are sitting at the tables. I'm interested to know a bit about whether private sector and civil society representation occurs at these meetings, particularly when a lot of the agreements are being made around policies in the workplace where it is up to the private sector to honor these commitments. How much input does the private sector have? And I mean, collaboration between public and private sector in this space, does that happen at the table or is that something after the fact? No, that, that's, that's, that's an excellent question. The gender issue has actually been one where we've had incredibly good and very constructive collaboration with the private sector. We have what they call a business and industry advisory committee at the OECD. So these are representatives, employers associations in OECD member countries make up this, this committee. And they, they discuss with us on the issues they're interested in, they, that, that, which can be around labor issues, but it can also be about chemicals, about regulations, about, about health issues like sugar and alcohol and things like that, also big debates and so on. So, um, but in gender, they were incredibly active and they put out two really good workshops where they got lots of people from companies, from their member companies around the table to discuss in a very, very, very proactive and good sense. My one big disappointment here is that the trade unions also have an advisory committee and I couldn't get them to focus on it. I kept, you know, I kept coming back and back and saying, do something, this is interesting, this is, and um, you're from Australia, right? Sharon Burroughs? Right. Yeah, she's, she's like, really important there and she would do an informal seminar to talk about basically how difficult it was as a female trade unionist to get people to focus on this and how family policies for example came late last in in in, in negotiations between employers and, and trade unions mm -hmm. it's wages and work conditions all kinds of other things and then that is like the last thing that stays for the rest so disappointing but business is doing well in that so I have a big question um, and, and that is so that you know one way to look at this is we're making progress and you're the optimism that's really going really well. Another perspective is, despite the business case, we're moving so slowly. And it mm -hmm. reminds me of kind of the business case and gender diversity in teams, where diverse teams are performed homogenous teams, but when you ask people, how much did you enjoy the work? People do not like diverse teams. And when you ask them, how well did your team perform? They'll say, probably not great, even though their team actually did perform really well. Mm -hmm. um, so diversity or inclusion, doesn't necessarily come naturally to us. And so that's what I'm saying, it's a big question. Have we done enough to include men on the home front, on the work front, and to kind of make this a, you know, thing that we want, rather than that is imposed on us and we're fighting against all the time. And it's building kind of on your trade union mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. um, so do you have any insight into interesting policies or examples of countries that are trying to do this? That's very interesting because um, this is a new t trend. This is a very recent trend, but um, people are starting to talk about partnership rather than gender antagonism and gaps and divides that need to be overcome. Mm -hmm. And um, there's two recent examples and, and from very conservative member countries, which I found interesting. One is that the German government came to the OECD and said, look, let's do something on partner, partner and sharing. Part uh, how do partners, uh, how do we get people to to share at home better, and to also share not only unpaid work, but paid work. So that goes back to the, the also in the, in the Netherlands, you know, part-time is okay if it's temporary and if it's done by both. 
we have no problem with part-time. But, but it shouldn't be only women and it shouldn't be in the long term. And, and so this is something that countries are catching on. The other thing that I found interesting, and I found this out by total coincidence, is that the Germans and the Austrians, who, as you saw on the slides, are pretty pathetic on a lot of those indicators, have decided to do men's conferences. And the ministers had men's conferences where they basically put forward precisely how men see this, how men, what are men's re uh, requests also. And because men often get very discouraged, and, you know, I, I remember on mission, have, doing a, a mission on gender in Japan, and many women in the public sector I was working with told me for their first child, the man had actually taken a parental leave and regretted it so much because they were so stigmatized and so badly treated that for the second child, no way, right? So, so men are encountering also a lot of um, obst obstacles probably which, which should be addressed. Um, but uh, again, you know, I think that up to a certain age, it's probably useless. <laughs> we need to think that some people cannot be converted anymore. <laughs> Even though, I mean, we had some discussions at the OECD recently with people who, on the face of it, they say all the right things. When you start digging, you discover that they didn't get it. You know? <laughs> they kind of say, yes, we're all for gender equality, and we're going to do this, and, and so on. And then they start talking about it. But part time's good because women can't work as much as men. He said, wait a minute, no, 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 this is, you know, not when they're children, you can't. They said, well, how about you stay at home? Um, or they still, they still tell you about revealed preferences. They look at part-time data and they say, these are revealed preferences. This is perfectly all right. What we need is choice, but nothing beyond choice. So, so uh, I agree, but maybe we should, uh, I don't know. That, that's what I said most of the times, and I'm really glad to see so many relatively many men in this room, because usually what happens is that only women come to these things, and, and there's women's fora and women's conferences, but not enough with men. Well, thank you very much, Monica. So we absolutely have to focus more on that partnership and sharing, maybe also going forward in the seminar. Um, so thank you very much, and thank you all for coming. Um, happy to announce that we have uh, Lisa Prugel, who's sitting right there. Uh, uh, sharing with us her insights on feminism triumphant and tamed, the politics of knowledge and of knowledge in gender and development next Thursday. So looking forward to having you back here next Thursday. Have a great night.